Hello, I'm Jameis. And I'm Tessa. Welcome to our podcast that celebrates wordiness and nerdiness and sometimes plain absurdiness. Please join us for today's episode of Your Your New New Favorite Favorite Word. Thank you for joining us this week. This is episode 18, and as usual, Tessa and I haven't told each other anything about the words we've prepared this week. (laughs) I, for one, am dying to know what Tessa's got for us. How about we just jump right in and find out? Okay. Well, first, I did just want to say that this past week I've been a little bit under the weather. I'm doing better now, but sometimes when I feel like that, I am a little hesitant to work on my podcast word. But I noticed that Whenever I get started, as soon as I start looking at the word, then I feel that excitement, and it's just, it's so much fun. I really am a a word nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely a word nerd. But I have a list that I, a running list that I keep on my phone of words that I find interesting when I'm just going about my daily life, and one that I looked up this week was dwindle. Mm. Now, this means to diminish or shrink or become less. And it was first used by Shakespeare in one of his plays of course, Shakespeare. in the late 1500s. Yeah, so he coined <laughs> the word dwindle, basically. And it took about 50 or 60 years for it to show up in more common usage. But it comes from, he coined it from, a word, dwine, D-W-I-N-E, that we don't have. It doesn't survive in our modern English. But it meant to waste or pine away. And it had a suffix... L-E added to it and then changed a little bit um, to add that D in there in between. So instead of dwindle, we get dwindle. But that was a common suffix that was used at the time, and it's called a frequentative suffix. So basically it indicates a repeated or continued action, a frequent repetition or intensity of action. And this is the kind of thing that a lot of languages do in different ways. Uh, in Russian, for example, which I've studied, they have this aspect of verbs called aspect. <laughs> <laughs> so in a situation, you might need to choose between two separate verbs that mean the same basic thing, but one of them is a one-time action, and another one is a frequently occurring or repetitive okay. action. And in some other languages, they might conjugate a verb differently, or use other kinds of morphemes, prefixes, suffixes, things like that. Or they might use reduplication, which Jameis has mentioned in a previous episode and is very interesting to study on its own. But in English, at least in the past, we have used this suffix le, or um, before that it was an el, but that morphed into the le, or an er sometimes it shows up, a frequentative suffix. And this is something I'd never thought about, but there is a huge list of words that are formed using this frequentative suffix. And so some of them, uh, the roots will be familiar to us. So, for example, sparkle, to spark frequently, or over and over again, or intensely, to startle, like when someone starts in surprise, right? Startle comes from that. Nestle, like to nest would be the root there. Right, to kind of snuggle in. Snuggle is another <laughs> Interesting. Trample, jiggle, crackle, waggle, bobble, <laughs> sniffle, and then the ER ones, blabber, p- 
patter, chatter, and flitter. So th- this is just a, a small smattering. <laughs> <laughs> Think about smatter. Um, of words that have this frequentative suffix. It's not something I've ever thought about before, but these are all related in that way. And some of them have roots that are less obvious to to us now. So like dwindle, they come from a root that we don't really use anymore, or they're less obviously from that root or from, yeah, from a root that we are familiar with. So for example, jostle comes from the word joust. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So you think about the connection between jousting and jostling to twinkle. We don't really talk about things twinking anymore, (laughs) but it's along the lines of winking and blinking, kind of that (laughs) idea. And prattle comes from the word prate, which is less familiar to us nowadays, although it still is usable. Um, Clamor comes from climb. Oh, wow. Clutter from clot. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Dazzle from daze. Nuzzle from nose, right? Oh, you can see neat, the connection, yeah. but it wouldn't be immediately obvious, maybe. Right, but that's really cool. Yeah. Straddle from stride. Oh. Waddle from wade. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. So tumble comes from a Middle English verb, tumben, to dance about. Okay. Um, and puddle from an Old English word, pud, P-U-D-D, meaning a ditch. So it's like a you know a small ditch uh-huh. or an intense ditch in one space. <laughs> Hover comes from an old verb hove to remain suspended in the air. Interesting, so, yeah. isn't that like a nautical term? Like the ho- oh, it's the past tense of heave. They yeah. hove to. Okay, yeah. it'd be interesting. I don't know for yeah. sure if there's a connection there, but interesting. Yeah, to remain suspended in air was the meaning of this one. So and then just. This one, I just have to share. (laughs) It was quite humorous. So in the 1530s, the word fizzle came to be used. But it comes from a Middle English verb, fist, which doesn't mean what fist means today. It meant to break wind or pass (laughs) gas without noise. (laughs) Fizzle. (laughs) So you think about the meaning of fizzle, right? Something not quite going off as intended or something like that yeah i got a laugh out of that one it's amazing what a deeper knowledge of language can give you (laughs) (laughs) right like your day is so much better because you know the origins of the word fizzle now right that's great so there are so many more of these this is just a small sampling of them but it's quite a fascinating topic that i'd never thought about before so and that's frequent Frequentative suffixes, yeah. Fascinating. Thank you, Tessa. That's really cool. Yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah. Well, like frequentative. I'm a sucker for grammatical terms. (laughs) Like listeners might have been able to pick up on that vibe already with me previously talking about things like SHM reduplication, homonyms, malapropisms, edcorns, oronyms. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't like to sit down and read a grammar textbook or anything. But when I stumble across a new term for a grammatical phenomenon, especially one that I never even imagined having a name before, <laughs> it makes me happy. We have noticed that, James. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's what you love about me. Yes, one of the many things. So this week, when I stumbled upon the word pleonasm. Oh, wow. <laughs> P-L-E-O-N-A-S-M. 
I got sucked joyfully into a bit of a rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm only going to scratch the surface here because it's it's actually more than a rabbit hole. It's like an entire warren. <laughs> I might have fodder for several more weeks worth of words now. But a pleonasm is when an idea is expressed in more words than are necessary. <laughs> for example, I saw it with my own eyes. <laughs> of course you did. Like, Who's, whose uh, eyes would you have used? Yes. <laughs> So the word pleonasm comes from Latin, which got it from Greek, meaning appropriately to be more than enough. Mm. Now, it's not, as I initially thought when I started reading about it, merely the use of too many words. A book that is twice as long as necessary (laughs) is not a pleonasm. There's different words for that. Right, exactly. But that book might contain many pleonasms. Rather, a pleonasm is a rhetorical device at the phrasal level. So, let me give a few examples. A free gift. <laughs> a gift, by definition, is free, right? Tuna fish. <laughs> Tuna is a kind of fish, but it's also, interestingly, a kind of prickly pear. Oh. So, if there's any ambiguity, tuna fish would be specifying and it would not be pleonastic. Uh, like, if someone offers you a tuna, fan- tuna sandwich... You might want to make sure you're getting what you expect you're getting. Well, since I've never been exposed to a prickly pear sandwich, that's probably pretty safe. Yeah. Uh, A burning fire. Fire burns. (laughs) To weep tears of joy. (laughs) Weeping tears is a pleonasm. What else would you weep? Um, From Nat King Cole's The Christmas Song, we hear every mother's child. (laughs) Every child must have a mother, biologically speaking. But it adds so much flavor. Exactly right. It's, it's this um, stylistic addition in many cases, stylistic or poetic, or even emphasis. Like, I was looking at the house itself, <laughs> or I chose this particular item. Hmm. Itself and particular are pleonastic, but there's that connotation of specificity or emphasis, right? Mm-hmm. You could say, I was looking at the house, or I chose this item. And it would still have the same meaning, but it lacks a little something poetically or stylistically. Uh, they can also pop up in the jargon of different professions as well. Like legalese has a lot of this. <laughs> terms like null and void. Terms and conditions. Each and every. <laughs> to us, who aren't lawyers, it uh, sounds and feels redundant. And it probably contributes to the opacity of documents like that. Um, but in legal context, context, those terms apparently have specific meanings. Like they're used as a, as a single phrase, yeah, as a unit. And there's different kinds of pleonasm, of course. The ones I've done before, or just now, are considered semantic pleonasms, but there's also syntactic pleonasms, where syntactic constructs are redundant. For, for instance, I told her that it was raining, Versus, I told her it was raining. Oh. The that in the sentence adds nothing syntactically. Uh, it's just there to, it can contribute rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, it That's can what help I was with balancing the phrase, right? But it's pleonastic. It can help with understanding too. If you're listening or reading along, sometimes mm-hmm. you can have something be ambiguous unless you put that that in there or something like that. Exactly, yeah. It can, like, if you have nesting, right, which is Mm -hmm. a phenomenon I might talk about in another episode. (laughs) 
use that to help separate the, the phrases and the kind of give your brain a signal that you're yeah. moving on to the next phrase or right. whatever. But it's pleonastic because <laughs> the sentence by itself can be parsed without it. Mm-hmm. There's also a morphemic pleonasm. <laughs> for, for example, electric and electrical. Mm. mean the same thing mm-hmm. but it's adding that al morpheme at the end it's pleonastic fascinating another example which you mentioned in another episode tessa what is the word irregardless <laughs> which means the same as regardless <laughs> that ir prefix is pleonastic and similarly flammable and inflammable so those are morphemic pleonasms oh that's fascinating i've always wondered about the flammable inflammable thing yeah, and, and part of me wonders if there was a, a period of time where it worked like irregardless and regardless, where people got up in arms about the word inflammable because it means <laughs> the same thing as flammable. <laughs> and then there's also the delightfully named bilingual tautological expression. <laughs> <laughs> so BTE would yeah, be an B-T-E. acronym for that. These pleonasms are formed by the use of two languages together, like chai tea. Um, right, where chai is Hindustani tea. for tea, yeah. right? Or bow staff, where <laughs> bow is Japanese for staff. Mm-hmm. Um, place names are especially prone to this. Wikipedia has an entire page dedicated to tautological or pleonastic place names. I'll link to that in the show notes. Hmm. But examples are Avon means river in Brythonic. <laughs> so the Avon River means river, river. <laughs> Or Ohio is Iroquoian for Great River. So mm. the Ohio River is the Great River River. <laughs> I love it. And Kilimanjaro is Swahili for Mount Ninjaro. Oh. So it's redundant to say Mount Kilimanjaro. Oh, wow. And so forth. There's so many it's examples reduplication of Reduplication bilingually, right? Right. And acronyms actually bring this in as well. For instance, the ATM machine. Right? <laughs> yes. Or a PIN number mm-hmm. where... PIN means personal identification number. So you're saying number number or machine machine. I love it. But linguistically, perhaps my favorite thing about pleonasm is that it's spoonerism. Neoplasm (laughs) is also a word. It refers to a type of abnormal or excessive tissue growth. And when it forms a mass, it's called a tumor. That's growth. That's That's just growth. (laughs) Wikipedia's entry for neoplasm even has the caveat, caveat, not to be confused with pleonasm. <laughs> <laughs> How fun. So we might conclude by saying that some might v- view pleonasm as a neoplasm on the skin of language. <laughs> but I, for one, am grateful for the amazing diversity of ways that people have found to express themselves. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs> Absolutely. That was so much fun. Well, thanks again for joining us. We hope that you have fun too listening to our episodes and we would love to hear from you at any time on our Facebook page or a private message. And we would love to know what's your new favorite word. Thanks again. Bye.